Welcome to WVU's Climate Conversations podcast. These episodes are student projects from the Fall 2019 Honors Book Club under the same title. My name is Katherine Williamson. I'm a teaching professor of physics and astronomy, and this book club was inspired by a TED Talk by climate scientist Katherine Hayhoe. She says that the most important thing you can do to fight climate change is to talk about it. Therefore, the aim of each Climate Conversation episode is to do just that, to talk about an aspect of climate change and to keep the conversation going. Hello, my name is Alexis DePaulo, and I study biochemistry at West Virginia University. I'm here with my guest, West Virginia delegate Evan Hansen. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. My name's Evan Hansen, and I was elected to the West Virginia House of Delegates in 2018. So I finished up my first session and getting ready to go back to Charleston next month for my second session. And in addition to serving in the House, I'm the president of Downstream Strategies, which is an environmental science and policy consulting company that's also based in West Virginia. All right. I read a little bit about the bill you're trying to pass. So would you like to talk a little bit about the Mojo Act? Sure. The Mojo Act, that stands for the Modern Jobs Act, and it's essentially a jobs bill. It's a bill that would allow large electricity consumers like manufacturing plants or data centers or WVU to have access to solar electricity. And what it says is that those types of large electricity consumers can purchase solar electricity so long as the solar arrays are placed on former coal mines in West Virginia. Right now, the way the rules are written in this state, those types of electricity users can't access large amounts of renewables. So this opens that up. It allows them to hopefully stabilize their electricity prices over the coming decades. But it also allows companies that have renewable electricity targets to meet those targets in West Virginia. Because if they don't have access to renewables using a policy like this, they'd have to plug into the grid. And the grid is about 92% coal right now. So that's a non-starter for some of these companies that have to meet those targets. Do you think that the people of West Virginia will be open to this idea, to using other forms of electricity? The reactions are mixed, but I think overall people are open to it. It's, it's not really a value judgment about where we should get our electricity. It's more just a nod to the economic reality that there's more and more companies and consumers that want their electricity generated from renewables. And, you know, I've seen a lot of movement in terms of other legislators over the last year who now are supportive of this type of approach because they understand that West Virginia is being passed over for jobs and there's a recognition we need to do whatever we can to diversify the economy. And one part of that is to diversify our energy mix and allow more renewables. This is Catherine. Wasn't there a company that built a solar power plant just over the border in Pennsylvania because of the current West Virginia laws, or am I misremembering that? Yeah, just outside of Morgantown is the Longview coal-fired power plant, and they are in the permitting stage right now to add a 70 megawatt solar array to their energy complex. They're also planning to build a gas-fired power plant there as well, uh, but they essentially put the solar array just across the border in Pennsylvania so that they could take advantage of the better solar policies in Pennsylvania. And so what that means for West Virginia is we're getting fewer jobs here because they're negotiating with the Pennsylvania Union instead of the West Virginia Union. And it also means that we're getting fewer tax revenues because most of those solar panels are being placed across the border. 
Now, as you said, the reactions of West Virginians are mixed, correct? Yeah, they're mixed. So your bill has bipartisan support, correct? It does. When I introduced it last session, we had four Republican co-sponsors and seven Democrats, and there were other people that wished they could have co-sponsored it, but it was limited to 11. And it's going to be reintroduced next month, and it'll be bipartisan then as well. Now, do you think, especially bills involving issues like climate change, do you think it's important that they're bipartisan? Yeah, I do. I guess I have a couple answers to that. One is that I'm a Democrat and I'm in the minority. So from a practical point of view, I'm not going to be able to pass any bill unless it's bipartisan. The Republicans control the House and the Senate, and we have a Republican governor right now. So the only way for a bill like this to pass is for it to be bipartisan. But I think bigger picture issues like climate change, it's a shame that it has become such a partisan issue. It didn't used to be such a partisan issue, but it has become one. So I think it's important for legislators to do our best to move it toward a bipartisan solution, because that's what it's really going to take to make any major progress. This is Catherine. I'm wondering, why did it change? You said it was not a partisan issue before, and now it is. What do you think changed? I think a lot of that change happened at the national level. And um, it's happened not just on this issue, but on a lot of issues where um, political strategists and lobbyists have found ways to to divide us in in their attempts to get reelected. And often it's easier to get reelected to draw black and white boundaries on issues and to have these litmus tests where if you're a member of a certain party, you're required to vote a certain way. And, you know, I think we've seen that happen over the last couple of decades. It didn't used to be that way, or not nearly as much. But unfortunately, that's where we are now, where there's much less overlap between the parties. There's way fewer moderates in either party. Part of it also has to do with the way our congressional districts are drawn. There's been a lot of gerrymandering after the last census, and that means that a lot of the districts are just more partisan districts. So in order to win your primary, you need to cater to your base, and the base feels more strongly in one corner or the other corner on issues like climate change. So, you know, it gets down to fair redistricting and questions about access to voting and more basic questions like that about our democracy. I was very interested because coming from where I live back home, it's a very controversial issue and either you support it or you're completely against it. So I would like to get to a point where like people don't really focus on the politics and they focus more on, you know, the issues behind it and why we need to do something now rather than, oh, well, you're a liberal and I'm a conservative, so we have to think this way. And I think that's exactly what we need to move toward. And we all need to try to have those conversations in whatever ways we can. And so part of the platform I have as a delegate isn't just passing bills, but it's participating in debates and talking either in committee meetings or on the House floor. So that's one thing that I made it a point to do last session was to talk about climate change a few times on the House floor and to actually talk about the science, which is not really open to debate. I mean, it's just science. You know, people have, scientists have known that carbon dioxide traps heat for the last hundred years or so. We know how much carbon is in coal, and we know that when it's burned, it creates carbon dioxide, and we have really accurate measurements of how much of these different greenhouse gases are 
in the environment, in the atmosphere. These things really aren't open to debate. It's just scientific fact. But people don't know that unless you talk about it. Because people just hear, hear stuff, hear what they want to hear, and then retreat into their corners. So I think it's great that you're, you're talking about this. Thank you. Now, in class, we kind of had a discussion over whether people would listen more to the science side or more to the personal side. So in your experience, do you think people react more extremely when you show them the science or when you're showing them that this can affect them in the future and their families and their children? I think in general, when you're trying to pass a policy, it's really important to have personal stories. A lot of people just tune out when you talk about the science. So that means when I'm talking about it, although I am bringing up some of the science because I think that's important to put out there, I think what people might resonate with more is talking about the increased flooding and the the deaths and the destruction of downtowns and people's homes that we've seen like in the big flood in 2016. I think you know people always react more to personal stories. That being said, because the science is being denied in climate change, I think it's also important to just put it out there in a matter-of-fact way and just stand your ground and assert what the science says and almost like dare people to contradict it because (laughs) they really can't. I'm curious about, you know, when you mentioned bipartisan conversations, if you could speak a little bit about the uh, video chat call-in you did for West Virginia students with the Speaker of the House, Roger Hanshaw, who's a Republican, and that, you know, you both have science backgrounds, but you come from very, very different political you know, um, backgrounds. So um, can you speak about like why you guys did that, um, how you thought it went, why you thought it was important? Sure. Um, Roger Hanshaw is the Speaker of the House. He's a Republican and I'm a Democrat, but we're both scientists. I'm an environmental scientist and he's a PhD chemist. And in the same spirit of trying to have conversations about climate change, we decided that it would be a great idea to have a video conference that in, that really reached out to science teachers across West Virginia to have their students participate in a discussion with policymakers. And I thought, you know, it would also just help for people to know that there are folks in Charleston at the Capitol that actually care about these issues and want to talk with them. So I reached out to the speaker without knowing whether he would agree to do it or not. And, and he did, despite the fact that we have different views on climate change. But I thought that was important. You know, there was no litmus test in order to have a discussion. I think that's what we actually need is to have people with different views to talk about it. So I thought it went really well. We had something like 20 or 30 classrooms that called in. So we had many, many students and we had lots of people who weren't even in schools who who participated as well. And they asked a lot of great questions. Uh, Most of the questions were policy related because climate change policy is very important in West Virginia because it's historically a coal state and there's still a lot of coal-related jobs and there's a lot of unemployed coal miners. And so we we have to be able to talk about those issues and address those questions if West Virginia is going to move forward on the issue. And one thing I was surprised at, frankly, was by how much overlap there was in the policies that the speaker and I thought were reasonable in West Virginia. Why students? What do you think, you know, young children, you know, or, or college students at WVU, why did you focus on them? You know, I mean, they can't vote right now. <laughs> uh, maybe some WVU students can. What's special about students in your mind? Well, sometimes when young people talk about an issue, they're, they're not as cynical, for one thing. <laughs> they're more 
open-minded and you know they're they look at an issue and they're just like scratching their head like why haven't you old folks fixed this <laughs> why, why are you why is the legacy you're leaving us all these problems you know because when you look at an issue fresh it sometimes it's hard it's hard to understand how things could be so screwed up <laughs> <laughs> so it's always kind of refreshing to talk to students or to younger folks about issues because they help put things in perspective a little bit when when you're getting caught up in the politics or in the in your cynicism of you know failing over the years so that, that was one benefit of it but but i think they're the future voters we we want kids to know that policymakers care what they think about and are responsive to them and and people are so cynical not just about specific issues but about government right now they don't think anyone who's elected to office cares about them or their issues and one way to to kind of fight against that is to just actually be accessible and to try to have conversations. Alexis, I'm actually wondering if you have any memories when you were in school before w- before coming to WVU, what memories you have of talking about climate change or the pol- politics around climate change? Um, if any, do you have any? I was actually just going to bring up that point. I really never learned about climate change until maybe two years ago. And even then it was more from the internet than from actual like school or like learning that so do you think it's important to um kind of add in classes maybe a curriculum focused on teaching children about climate change so maybe they you know (laughs) they know about it and you know can form an opinion i mean not really an opinion because there's nothing to really debate about it but i think it should be part of the science curriculum if it's not because it's really these are really science questions terms of the emissions and the effects of greenhouse gases on the climate and and like I said before we've known about this for a long time and the projections are coming true you know it's it's pretty settled science I completely agree because I feel like a lot of children don't really get to form their own thoughts because they're not taught about climate change for example so all of their information comes from their parents and then if their parents aren't necessarily on that side then they don't really have the chance until they're much older to learn about it and think about it and do something about it. Yep, and so that's why I think it should be part of a science curriculum. Yep, and I think people should talk about the policy aspects of it because that's very real and nothing's going to be done without policies that address the issue. I but if you deny the science, then... Well, I think I heard, you know, I've, I've seen in some of the climate education literature that focusing on the problems just shuts people down and like you say delegate hansen um focusing on the policies the solutions the, the different ways forward that is up for debate right like how do we solve this that's up for debate um and that's where we do need everyone's voice so i'm curious you know how can wv students use their voice well one way is to talk to your leaders at all different levels because you know, cities and counties can play a role. Um, WVU as an institution can play a role, um, but also state policymakers and federal policymakers play an important role. And if if they don't hear from you, they don't think about the issue, or they just make assumptions about what people think. And I, I bet if you ask the hundred delegates in Charleston whether their constituents care about climate change 
it's going to, the response is going to be based on their political persuasion. I think Republicans are probably going to say, I don't have any constituents that care about it. But they, they might be surprised if their constituents actually start contacting them. <laughs> and it might make them think about these policies in a little more detail. Yeah, in my astronomy class at WVU, I um, teach about the greenhouse effect and global warming sort of from a planetary spec- perspective. We compare to Venus and Mars, and then we do have a day where I encourage students to practice using their voice, and I actually have them write letters in class. They are not required to mail them, uh, but they are invited to. And I've got about 200 students per semester. Less than 10% want to actually mail their letters. I've even seen on my end of course evaluations, you know, some criticism of that seems so juvenile to write a letter. And I just wonder what, I was surprised to read that because in my mind, writing letters and calling our representatives is how we use our voice. So I wonder, what would you say to those students? That it's your responsibility as a citizen (laughs) in a democracy to talk with your leaders. I mean, they can't read your mind. And, um, if if you're cynical about your leaders and you don't think they represent you, then you got to talk to them. Make sure they know what you want them to do and what's important. Why do you think people have, well, at least my students, a lot, most of them have that hesitancy to actually mail, mail their letters? Why do you think people hesitate or don't, don't actually reach out? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it could be a little intimidating to approach somebody who is elected because you think that they're different than you are or something like that. I mean, I used to get real nervous talking to elected officials. But once you start communicating with folks, you realize they're, they're just the same as anyone else. They just happen to run for office and win. And, um, and especially at the, the local and state levels, people are extremely accessible. I mean, you could look up their, their home phone number or their address if you want. You know, you could you see them walking down the street. And, and we're all used to talking with constituents and actually appreciate it. Thank you again, Delegate Hansen, for being here today. Thanks for having me. Thank you.